Well, good morning, Redemption. How are you guys doing today? Nice. Hey, before we get started, I have an announcement to, to make, and it's actually a really cool announcement. Um, today at 1.30, uh, down at the Hub, we're going to be having a meeting for anybody that wants to, to be a part of it. Uh, certainly... Uh, parents of junior hires or high schoolers may be the most interested in this, and you can come and be a part of it, but anybody's welcome to attend. Uh, but what we are doing as a church is we are moving forward with bringing on a full-time student ministries pastor. And we're excited about this. We've had two really amazing guys running junior high and high school, and we love them, and, and uh, we'll even be recognizing that in the future more. Uh, but uh, you know, life is taking them in directions, and, and we're excited for them as that is happening. And so we've kind of looked at our church, looked at the future of uh, students, and, and really in a lot of ways, even the future uh, as it pertains to what Christianity is all about, what the church really is. And from that, we've really felt led to, to see somebody that would come on board and their primary focus, all right, and this is where it's a little bit different maybe than some churches that consider a student ministry's pastor. Um, the primary focus here is someone that is so utterly in love with Christ, so absolutely committed to God's word that they take those two passions and they disciple that into the lives of students. Right? In other words, we're not trying to say, hey, can we bring somebody on that's going to make the coolest, hippest, trendiest uh, youth ministry ever? That's really not our heart. They may be very gifted in things like that, but our heart is really that person that is going to uh, aid parents as parents disciple their kids, and this person will aid in that by discipling students as well. Because what we notice and what we've seen as a track record is that... Um, when students are truly discipled through junior high and high school, the retention of their faith is much deeper than any other form of student ministries. And so we want to really have a commitment to that idea of discipling kids, of helping students wrestle with the hard questions and how the Bible answers those hard questions. And so, um, we invite you to be praying for us in that process. Uh, literally, we just posted the opportunity this week, and we have had hundreds of people interested just in the first 24 hours. We had hundreds of people interested. Um, and so it, it's going to be about a two-month process of taking in any information of those who are interested in the position. So about the middle of June is when we'll, we'll kind of close that part and begin to sift through all of the potential aggregate. Um, and, and what we really desire more than anything else is just God's absolute best. And this is sort of a niche desire. You know, somebody in student ministries that really, again, uh, is, is, is an apologist in some ways that can really answer the hard questions because we know more than ever, uh, teenagers have really important, difficult questions that they face. And we want to really point back to the Bible as being the source of those answers and answering those complicated questions as opposed to running from those. Uh, we want to really answer those. So we're very excited about this. If you'd like to know more, again, down at the Hub, 1.30 today, there's a meeting. Anybody can attend. Uh, you can ask any questions, whatever else. That would be awesome. But again, just excited about things that are going on. And, and again, uh, be praying because it's, a, it's a, a real important area of emphasis as we look at uh, the future of the church. Because we don't believe that students are the future church. We believe the students are the church, right? They are the church. And we want to prepare them for the future as the church, right? That's our heart behind all of this. So 
Anyway, 1.30 today, be praying for us. That'd be awesome. Beyond that, I'm gonna pray right now. We're gonna get underway with what we got for today. Jesus, I thank you again for your word. And, and, and I say, think about even in relationship to this position, how uh, much we want that passion for you and that passion for your word to be the center point of what this is all about. And so, um, uh, man, I, I, I pray that you will really guide in that vein. And I pray that we as a church will be radically guided by your word, that we will be committed to your word, but more deeply because we're committed to you, because we want to experience you and to uh, follow after you and to revere you in our lives. And so I pray today as we get into your word that you would teach us those things and that they would echo in us, that they would sink deep and stick so that we are truly a transformed people. We thank you and we love you and we praise you in your good and awesome name. Amen. All right, so uh, the Bible is a funny book. Sometimes uh, people look at the Bible and they say, oh man, there is a lot of difficult stuff in the Bible that is hard to understand. And um, I have read this book more than once, and I would say that there are occasions where we run into verses uh, or little sections that we go, man, that is really difficult to understand. In fact, even in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we'll get into in a few weeks, uh, there's going to be a section that I, I, I would probably guess most scholars look at and say that's one of the most difficult passages in all the New Testament. And it's difficult where it's just, it's difficult to see what Peter's really communicating, why he uses the images that he does. And so that makes it really hard, right? So sometimes there are these occasions where the Bible is hard. Today is not one of those, all right? Today is remarkably easy to understand. But what I find is it's difficult to live. And, and that's probably more often the case. It's not the difficult portions of the Bible that are hard. It's the clear parts that are really, really hard. And I think even Mark Twain had once spoken to that fact. And so today we're looking at a passage that is easy to understand, hard to live. So if you have a Bible or you have an app, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be going from verse 1 to verse 10 this morning. Now, uh, the way this starts off is with a very simple word. It starts off in verse 1 with the word so, right? And much like the word therefore, so is building an argument. Something's been said, and in light of that, he says, so here's what I want you to do. And the argument that he had back in chapter one is he says, listen, you have an eternal hope, right? Your eternity is set. You have a hope that is established for you in heaven. So because you have this hope established for you in heaven, and because you are called to be holy as God is holy, and because you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and because God's word is dwelling in your life because of all of those things, he says, so here's what I want you to do, right? So I, I say all of that because you have to understand what you have to then face what you're called to do. If, if I just tell you, stop doing certain things, but I don't tell you how you're loaded to face those things, I, I'm doing you a disservice, right? And, and, and Peter would be doing the same disservice, which is why he loads up on who you are, what you have, how Jesus has established you, what he's called us to in life. And in light of all of that, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, right? So again, like I said, very easy to understand, 
But what I find is that that list is hard to do. Now, we might not think that. We might even look at that list and go, well, please, I don't, I don't struggle with those things. But, but technically, we do. We do. And, and so Peter's being very abrupt about this. And he's saying, when you look at that list, don't entertain it. Don't play with it. Don't tinker with it. Don't excuse it. Don't, you know, sort of let it come and go into your life. He, use a, he uses a very bold phrase, put it off right? Like an article of clothing, get rid of it, send it away, burn it. That's really what he's getting at. Really get rid of it, right? So you, you want to put this away like it's twerking, all right? Put it away like it's crystal Pepsi. Nobody wanted it, right? Put it away, right? So like get rid of it, right? And, and then he gives this list that is very simple but potent. First of all, he says, put away all malice, now, in, in our culture, we, we see that word malice as just to be mean or hateful. But in Peter's culture that he writes to, that word really encapsulated everything that would have been bad or cruel or bitter. It's, it's the antonym to the word virtue, right? So he's saying, put off anything that isn't virtuous, Anything that doesn't accentuate moral excellence. He says, put that stuff off. And you know what, again, I look at that and I go, man, it is a struggle for us sometimes. Especially if you think about being uh, in, in the context that they were in, which was a persecuted environment. Very similar, I think, to the level of persecution that the, the United States is beginning to feel. This is just before full-blown um, you know, execution of Christians. This is just where culture was against them and felt them to be narrow and short-sighted and bigoted and all of those kinds of things. And, and so he's saying, listen, you've you got to make sure when you start to feel that pressure that you don't become malicious in return, that you don't become bitter. You don't start to meet wrong with wrong. You don't fight fire with fire because it's easy to do. When you feel slighted, when you feel disliked, when you feel maligned by your environment, it's very easy to say, you want to fight, I'll fight. It's very tempting. I, this is my struggle sometimes, right? Every once in a while, there'll be some article or, or something like that that I'll read, and because I have a blog, I'm foolish, and, and I go, I'm going to write to this. Right? I'm, I'm going to tell them, and by God's grace, I've never actually pulled that trigger yet. Um, but there's these moments where I'm like, I'll say a thing or two. And it's like, now why am I doing this? Is it because I'm trying to make a thoughtful argument, or I'm feeling the spirit of maliciousness toward those I disagree with. It's a tone of heart, right? But he says, put that malicious spirit away. Put malice away. All malice. It doesn't matter what kind it is. Put it away, right? Anything that's contrary to virtue, put it away. And I think there's tremendous uh, even um, kind of witness or outreach value in this. When we as Christians choose to not live malicious, when we live above the fray, when we don't let those who are our enemies or our opposition or our critics get under our skin to a degree where we start to seethe with frustrations, right? I mean, when we go, no, hey, I understand that, hey, I'm not of this world. I'm an exile. I, I, I don't build brick and mortar here. I'm tenting through this life. When, when we really live that, that stands out. Right? When we don't get baited into those things, it stands out. And so Peter is encouraging a church that is, again, being persecuted within culture. Don't be malice. Put it away. He says, also put away all deception. 
This word's a great word in, in, in its original Greek language. It means a lure or bait, right? So the idea is don't put things out there that are a lure in such a way that doesn't represent the truth. So, so don't use half-truths. Don't uh, kind, of, kind of deal with your own faults by trying to cast blame elsewhere, right? Don't, don't stretch things. He says, we are saved to the truth, for the truth, by the truth, and so we should be people of the truth. Don't get into this world of being deceptive, right? That's the heart. And again, we, we might go, well, we're Christians. We don't struggle with this, but we do. We, we do struggle with it. I know that there are times that I struggle with this, where again, I, I'm kind of, you know, kind of not quite as, as honest with my relationships with people. There may be a person where I see them, I'm like, hey, good to see you. And I'm hugging, I'm like, hey, awesome. All right, I gotta go. You know, like, like, like there's that, and, and again, if I have that, I need to have Jesus deal with my heart toward the person instead of almost like just kind of going, no, I'm always going to just tolerate. I'm always going to roll my eyes when they're not looking. That, that's a deceptiveness that goes on. And so Peter says, man, you got to put that away as well. Next, he says, put away hypocrisy. And hypocrisy was a theatrical word. It meant to put on a mask and play a part. Right? And, and, and if you think about this in, in our culture even, uh, this is one of the big accusations, right? That we have a confession, but we don't always have a lifestyle that fits the confession. That's what they say. Christians are just hypocrites. Now, here's what I'm going to push back on. I, I don't believe that is nearly as true as we are accused of. I, I don't believe it. I think it's just an easy target, right? Where they go, kind of, oh, you're a hypocrite. I'm like, yes, so are you. Welcome to our club. You know, like... Like every human being is a hypocrite because every human being is imperfect. Every human being is inconsistent. Every human being holds to a set of values that they don't always live out. Everybody's a hypocrite. That's why we need the gospel, right? So no news here that hum humans are, are hypocrites. But, but Peter says, man, go out of your way to link your conduct with your confession, because that's what the world is watching. It wants to know, does this gospel really change lives? Do you really believe it? When your neck is on the line, when your money's on the line, when your reputation's on the line, will you live above it and not fall victim to saying one thing and doing another? They're waiting to see, they're desperate to see that consistency. And that is a powerful vehicle for the gospel. Now, I think what's always going to make this hard within our culture, like I said, sometimes they apply this word to us far more than it's justified. But in, if you look at like research on the top five things that unbelievers don't like evangelical Christians for, hypocrisy is always in the top five, maybe even in the top three. The dilemma is if we catered to all of their other complaints against us, we would have to become hypocrites to cater to all of their complaints, right? So there's a no win here, right? So when they say, you're too narrow, you think Jesus is the only way, you're too judgmental because you believe that we're all sinners, you're like, yeah, I, I can't help you on that. But if I give up believing Jesus is the only way and I give up on believing that we're all sinners, then yes, I would be an even bigger hypocrite than you're accusing me of. So we're never going to win this. We're always going to be too narrow. We're going to be too particular. We're going to be too fixated on the problem of sin and the solution of Jesus being the only way. That's just always going to get us in trouble. But I, I'm going to go back to 
what we can avoid or should avoid as much as possible is having a confession that doesn't merge with our character or our conduct. We need to labor in that. And that's what Peter knows. Peter knows, and we have 2020 hindsight, that it was that consistent living of the church for hundreds of years in the face of persecution where they just lived like Jesus. They lived as servants. They received their persecution with joy and continued to preach the good news that that changed an entire culture because they sincerely lived it, even to the point of loss of life, right? And so he's saying, man, just... Just, just work hard to not be malicious. Work hard to not be deceptive. Work hard to not be hypocritical. He goes on to say, put away envy. Envy. And this is a tough one because envy and jealousy are like two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, envy is desiring what you don't have. And jealousy is the dread of losing what you do have, right? And and both of these are a risk always for us as Christians because, you know, we might have this, we used to have a certain level of clout or a certain level of power or a certain level of influence or a certain standard of life or whatever else, and and that's gone and I want it back or I'm going to fight to keep what I've had. And again, not that there isn't maybe times and places in which we can do that well, but if it starts to turn into uh, those are more my fixation than Christ is my fixation, right? Then that's, that's where the trouble can begin. And Peter knows this. And so he says, work hard to put off that kind of envy. And then last, he says, all slander. Put away all slander. See, slander is a tough one. Slander is this idea where we treat speculation it's truth. We treat speculation as truth, or maybe another way to say it um, is that we believe the worst about what is said about another person, even at the cost of any real facts. In other words, we're so determined against that individual or against that group that everything that is said in the negative, we instantly lock onto and say, that must be true. Why? Because I don't like them. Right? This is what can happen. Or when they do something, we always think the worst about them when they do it. It can never be that they're well-intended. It can never be that they really earnestly want to do this thing and their motives are right. It's instantly, no, it has to be wrong because I know them and they are wrong. And so then we spread that and we share that and we communicate that to others. All of those are ways in which we slander and we live in a slander-driven environment just culturally, man, there's whole industries around slander. What do you think a tabloid is? Right? It's just designed for slander. Right? Every move a person makes, you just put it in the worst possible light into story. That's a form of slander. And, and again, I'm going back to the message to us as Christians who live otherworldly, right? Who live, again, above the fray because we're exiles with an eternal living hope, and this world isn't our hope. Um, I think this is one of those areas I find in my own life, I just confess, um, that I can easily fall into when there are people that I disagree with. And so every move they make, uh, I always ascribe to them the worst motive, right? The, the worst motive, I don't think the best, I think the worst, right? And if somebody asks me, what do you think about this person, this group, this thing, uh, I'll have the negative answer because I've run it through my slanderous filter of thinking the worst, 
Right? I mean, that, 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 that is a temptation. And again, I, I even say that more so right now where, uh, again, you're going to hear me talk about this more than maybe some are comfortable with, but I do think we are in a time in our uh, society where Christianity is probably as unpopular as it's ever been. And, and there's going to be people that set their will against the church and against the gospel and against Jesus and against the Bible. And I'm going to want to slander them just because I instantly know they're trying to shut it down. And slander isn't the way forward, Peter's saying. Peter understood. The ruler of Peter's day was a guy named Nero. Not a good guy. Right? And Peter's saying, don't, don't slander. Don't envy. Don't be deceptive. Don't be malicious. Don't be hypocritical. He says, don't do any of those things. Because what we are as Christians and what the church is, is the counter to the culture. Do, do we understand that and realize that? That we literally are the counterbalance to the culture. And that counterbalance isn't merely morality. It isn't merely ethics. The counterbalance to the culture is exhibiting and modeling the person of Christ. That's the counterbalance. Right? They need the gospel. They need Christ. They need to see God clearly. They need to see God's people so utterly in love with God, so sold out to his purposes, so committed to the eternal plan that that is what they're most known for as that counterbalance. Right? That's what our world needs to see. That is what I wrestle with. I sometimes have a very short-sighted vision instead of that big vision. And so that's what Peter is driving us toward. He says, so because you have all these things, put off these things. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. Right? And, and, and if, if there's anything he's really getting at there, that pure spiritual milk really in a lot of ways is the word of God, but it's also the God behind the word of God. I, I, I love I love this book. I don't want us to worship this book. I want us to worship the God who gave us this book. And so long for the pure spiritual milk of the word of God and then go deeper to the God behind the words, behind the pages, behind the book. That's where Peter wants us to be. And I love his picture, right? As a newborn infant long. You ever seen a hungry newborn? So fun. Right? They're like, all right? They are, right? You know, you're like, this is great. This is a great image of how we should long. There should be this thing where we say, I want there to be an appetite, and then I want that appetite to be insatiable. I want to be so utterly hungry for God and what he says that I can't get enough. And I know for some of us in this room, we're going to hear that and go, I don't relate to that. And I understand there's been seasons in my life where I wouldn't relate to that statement as well. And that's where it comes back to saying, God, help me to have that appetite. Help me to see you clearly. In fact, I love the way Peter continues to say it. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Some versions don't say if, they say since. In other words, if you've really tasted, since you've tasted, 
man, this is why you would have an appetite. Part of this is saying, God, help me taste. I love where Peter borrows this. He borrows it from King David. In Psalm 34, starts in verse one, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. So the first phase of this, right? How do I get to this place? Is I'm gonna constantly praise. When I get up in the morning, God, thank you. When I go to bed at night, God, thank you. I praise you. Throughout the day, I praise you, right? This is what David does. He says, my soul makes its boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. And so he says in verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. See, I, I, I want to bring it back to the fact that what what the message of the Bible at large is really all about is this pursuit of, of God. Like a real legitimate pursuit, this desire to press in and experience him in, in ways that are intended through this good news of the gospel that Jesus made available. Where we, kept, we keep thinking and kept, keep praising and keep celebrating and keep longing and keep wanting and then in that we taste and we see that he's good. I'm going to tell you what. Here's what the world really doesn't need. The world doesn't need more intelligent people. It doesn't need more creative people. It doesn't need uh, funnier people or wittier people or more clever people or more constructive people. What, what the world needs is deep people. What our culture needs is truly deep walkers with God. They need to be able to look and go, okay, there is, there is something there. I disagree with you, but boy, there is something undeniable in you. It's not just an argument. No, there's something in you that has held you captive. I think about Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he talks about outsiders coming into the church. And, and he's trying to correct some of their abuses, but he gives the ultimate pinnacle of what they should come in and say. They should come in and say, God is truly among you, right? Because that is that pursuit of God. That is that want of God that we see in, in David. I've tasted it. I've seen the Lord is good because I have praised. I have thanked. I have enjoyed. I was reading Romans the other day and came across this. It never really had stood out to me until this particular time. In Romans 12, 11, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. You love that? Don't be lazy in zeal. It's a command to us. Don't be lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Right? And, and I love this about him because, again, he's giving us some direction. Right? Our faith isn't just designed to be thoughtful stoic. It should be thoughtful zealous. And it should be something that we're not casual about. Where we're, again, every day saying, God, I just want to know you more. I want to know you more deeply. I want you to shape my life in a more profound way. I don't want to settle for the status quo. I want to truly be sold out. I don't want to just sell out to average. I want something extraordinary in you. Extraordinary. Because that's what he's offering. And so that is the encouragement that we see throughout the pages of Scripture that God is truly good and we can truly know him in that way. If you've tasted and seen that he is good, man, then you will long for more and more. 
See, God desires passion out of us because we are the representative group and people who worship him on this planet, right? This is partly why he wants us to be passionate because we are here as this this entity of his celebration. In fact, it goes on, verse four. It says, as you come to him, right? He who was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you need to realize some things. And I, I love that first little section there really quick, just because, again, it's talking about uh, how God sees Jesus, right? As we come to him, the one that is precious in the sight of God, the world may look at him and reject him. The Jewish culture that he came into looked at him as this stone that would build God's new temple, and they rejected the stone. They said, no, no, that's not God's new temple. He's not the cornerstone of God's new temple. We don't want anything to do with this Jesus as being the next iteration of what God is doing in the world. We don't want that. It says, but we have come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, this is what we are now in him. He is the builder and he is building us into this purpose of counter-cultural worship to God, which is the hope of the world, really, to see God and surrender to him. And this is what we are, and this is what we do. And what we realize is he who builds the house is just as important as the house that is built, right? The character of the builder spills over into that which is built. And this is a lot of what Peter is trying to say. Uh, He is the cornerstone. He is the one that is the builder. And he's then built you to hold his same values and character and disposition and passions to be these different things. And so we understand that the builder's character matters in what is built. Um, I'll give you a different example, a different type of builder, not a literal construction project. One that's very different. Um, Here in uh, 2014, Uh, the Cleveland Browns decided that they were going to go all in on this young, hotshot quarterback, right? Johnny Manziel, Johnny Football, right? And and there was a lot of buzz around Johnny Football, and and in Johnny's own life, there was a lot of buzz about Johnny and his abilities in football, so much so that he began to trademark different uh, phrases, Right? And some of this is still kind of going through a legal process, but one of his phrases that he decided to trademark that was used before, but he wanted the trademark on it, was the house that Johnny built. Right? And so kind of in his mind, he's like, man, I'm all that. I'm amazing. Uh, really, Johnny built the house, and so it really should be my trademark. And then in his first starting game, he lost 30 to nothing. Right? Be- because Johnny instead of preparing for what he was supposed to do, was partying and playing and celebrating his abilities and he was given the money sign everywhere. But see, Johnny's character didn't match what was needing to be built. So it didn't matter if it was the house that Johnny built because if Johnny doesn't have the character to build it, doesn't have the discipline to build it, nothing's really getting built or whatever is built is not built well, right? This is why Jesus is the builder matters because he builds well. Because of this, as his house, we don't need 
some sacred space. We're the house now, right? And it says, we're priests. Uh, We don't need some mediary between us and God. Jesus becomes that because we're his priests. And it says here, we are his sacrifices. And we're not sacrifices slain like lambs in the Old Testament. We're living sacrifices, right? So this is how we do things. This is how we live. In fact, uh, I go back to Romans chapter 12. Starts in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we first live as sacrifices to God? We obey. We present our bodies in obedience to God. This is how we offer our sacrifices. Second, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The second way we offer our sacrifice is we think. Obeying is one, thinking is another. We live in a culture that excels at feeling, that accentuates feeling, that markets feeling. The videographic style of television and movies is designed to make us feel, feel, feel. It's not always designed to make us think, think, think. And Paul says, you want to worship God? Think. Think. From thinking, then you feel. But if you start to feel before you think, you're going to have all kinds of mess. And so he says, here's how we worship. Here's how we sacrifice. We are obeying. We are thinking. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says in verse 15, it says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. This is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Obeying, thinking, praising. These are ways that we offer sacrifice. And then he also says, sharing, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, I just highlight those because he's saying we're this temple, we're this priesthood, we are these sacrifices, and these are the ways we sacrifice. These are the ways that we live, right? Obeying, thinking, praising, giving, sharing, doing good, right? That's the heart. And so that's what Peter drives us to. He says, just live that way. Live that way. Be the sacrifice. Now he goes on to say, For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So so the honor is for those of you who believe. Right? So he's bringing it back to Christ. Now, I, I don't know if you're familiar with what a cornerstone functions as. I think we have a picture of one up here. Um, There's a cornerstone, right? So basically, architecturally speaking, the cornerstone is that tool and that initial piece that everything aligns itself from, right? And, And that's kind of the point Peter's making, right? This is what we're called to, and what we do is we line off of Christ because he is the cornerstone. We plumb off of his life. We plumb off of his word. We plumb off of his truth. That is how we align ourselves. We align with nothing less than Christ. And for those who align themselves with Christ, he says, it's an honor for you who believe. It's a blessing. It's precious. It's a joy, right? But for those who do not believe, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here's what Peter is saying there. It says, for those of us who are Christians, we align with Christ and we're blessed. But for those who don't, truth is truth. In other words, there are going to be people that say, I don't align my life with Christ because I deny him, I disbelieve in him, I doubt him, I think he's dumb, whatever it is. It's not my thing, I'm not religious, I don't think there's any evidence. The list can go on and on and on. And Peter will say, "Uh uh-huh, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. He's still the cornerstone though. In other words, no matter how much you deny, no matter how much you deject him, no matter how much you want to disbelieve him, he's still him. And there's no circumventing that, right? No matter how much people want to say Jesus isn't real or the Bible isn't real or faith isn't real, no matter how much they want to say that God is cruel or he's judgmental or he's harsh or he's critical or he's inconsistent or it's all superstition and it's silly anyway, all of the labels that can get applied don't change the fact that Jesus is still God, he's still risen, he still lives, and he still will judge. It doesn't change anything. Doubt doesn't change anything. Disbelief doesn't change anything, right? It just means you disbelieve in something that is still true. This is Peter's ultimate point. They're rejecting what is true. He's just true, right? Because of this, says he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, right? And and here's what I want to be clear on. Um, Jesus is really offensive. I'm going to be honest with you. Jesus is probably the most offensive topic in the Bible. I mean, I think there's some topics that within our culture, people are offended by. I I really do. And I understand some of the offense. For example, um, the Bible speaks to life. And and some people get very uh, bothered and offended when uh, we take a position that says we believe abortion is the taking of life. And it creates some tension. In fact, even some of you right now might already feel pressure in your chest like, oh, is he going to talk about that? And I'm saying, well, I'm not really going to get into it except to say uh, that is a conversation that can be offensive for people. We say the Bible speaks to issues of life and abortion is the taking of life. And that's that's a topic to discuss, right? Another topic in the Bible that is there is greed. And we live in a culture that sometimes really suffers from greed and some people can get offended by that conversation. And so, and and again, the chest kind of constricts and you can have some offense over the conversation of greed and money and purpose in life, right? So that can do it. The Bible speaks about marriage and sexuality. And as soon as you start talking about that and what the Bible says, there more constriction because like, oh, that that can be a very offensive topic. Um, Can I tell you, none of those are nearly as offensive as Jesus. None of those are nearly as offensive as Jesus. Jesus is the most offensive topic. And here is why. Here's what Jesus says to the world. There's a hell. And you're going there. And unless you repent of your sins and believe on me as the only way, you will ever, forever be uh, removed from me and suffer that fate but I died on the cross for you to free you of your sins and bring you into life with me and life eternal. That message is the most offensive message. That is the message that that people most have a problem with because then they go, so are you trying to say that everybody else is wrong? And I would say, I'm not saying that. 
but there's these red letters in my Bible that do say that. I, I, I'm, I'm the mailman. I, I didn't write it. I didn't organize it. And trust me, I'm not reading into this one. Right? When people go, oh, no, no, that's up for interpretation. It's really not. It's not up for interpretation. Uh, again, it's not an interpretive problem. It's like I said, there are parts of the Bible that are really easy to understand, but not easy to receive. And, and this is one of those things that's not easy to receive. That Jesus is the cornerstone. All of life is either aligned with him or against him. It's kind of that simple. It's very black and white. It's very, Jesus said, there's two ways. You know, we're the ones who want to say, there's many paths. And he's like, that's not what I said. I said, there's two. We're like, well, what do you mean by two, Jesus? You mean like 2.5, two, you know, like, like, no, it's just two. And this is why I say Jesus is offensive. Sometimes we try to clean Jesus up and make him not seem so offensive, but he's, he's an offensive guy as far as this is what it says, Right? People look at the God of the Old Testament and go, ah, oh, he's so wrathful and everything else. I'm like, you know, um, he had to get on to people sometimes, but Jesus is the primary guy in the Bible talking about eternal punishment. He's the guy that's really pitching the hell issue a lot. Now, again, I'm not saying all of this to be heavy. What I'm trying to get back to is that Peter makes it very clear that there's just these two sides. You either align with him or you align against him. He's either the cornerstone in which all of life is built from or he's the rock of offense. So Jesus is either precious for his message or he's perverse for his message in the mind of a person. There's only two phases. And that is what Peter says. He's a stone of stumbling, a rock of of offense. And then he goes a step further. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Right? And, and, and this is an interesting thing to me um, because it says it's not so much that they doubt. Because that's what we want to say. Well, they, you know, they doubt, they, they don't believe because there's not enough evidence to prove it. And Peter says, that's not the problem. The problem is they disobey what is said. And, and here's where I, I, I agree with Peter. I understand where he's coming from. Uh, if you meet people who don't believe, and they're going to say, you know, there's not enough evidence, and, you know, I think science has some bearing on this, and they're going to have all this stuff. But if you say, okay, let's take all that up for a minute, and let's say we could prove that the God of the Bible is real. Let's say we could prove him. Would you then receive him? And the answer is still No. And the reason the answer is still no is because they'll say, the God of the Bible is the most cruel, judgmental, harsh, unloving, unmerciful, callous, you know, bigoted. I mean, the list is long. So in other words, if God is true, but that is God, I don't want that God. That's why it's, they disobey. It's not that they just disbelieve. They disobey. I don't like who he is, so I do not want him. Right? And I would say none of us would want God unless God did something in us to go, oh, I see him as he really is because he's given me eyes to see. And so Peter says, man, this is really just the bottom line difference. You're either in or you're out. You either believe or you don't believe. You either receive who he is as a cornerstone or you reject him because he's a rock of offense. For the outside world that doesn't receive, that's the position they have with him. He says, but for us, it's different. Verse nine, he says, but you are. In contrast to those who stumble because they don't obey, who don't receive him as the cornerstone, you are very different than them. 
He says, but you are a chosen race, a chosen race, right? We're this trans-temporal culture that's not really bound by color, by uh, culture, by a unique creed of this world. We're bound by something beyond this world. That's what makes us a very special chosen race, right? That's what makes us unique in Christ. More than that, it says, you are a royal priesthood, and you don't wear funny robes and have crazy haircuts, right? You don't have to have that. You are a part of this kinship in Christ. He says, you are a holy nation, right? Well, again, we're, we're, we're exiles in this nation. We're a part of a much more profound nation where our declaration of independence is the cross, where our constitution is scripture, where our citizenship, it's eternal. It's not just temporal. And where our leader is Christ who is king. I mean, this is what makes us a holy nation. And it says we are a people for his own possession. We've been purchased by his blood. We are owned by him, possessed by him in a tender and loving way. He says, this is all true, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I love this. I love this because what it says is what is true about all of this as we put off these things and we put on those things and we live by way of the word and we understand what our role and purpose and calling is in Christ, all of this. He says, all of that is so that you would be public, that you would proclaim Our faith isn't private. Our faith isn't quiet. We're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. And you go, well, then how do I proclaim the excellencies of him who called us? You just tell your story. I just tell my story. What are the excellencies of him who called us? Well, your story is your story, but it can be any number of things, right? I was insecure. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was fearful. I was inebriated. I was arrogant. I thought uh, knowledge was the key to everything. Uh, I didn't like other people. Uh, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was whatever. Whatever your story is, I was this, but he rescued me. That's how you proclaim his excellencies. That's it. Right? It's like the dude that was blind, and Jesus heals him, and they're like, all right, what really happened here? He's like, uh, I was blind. Now I can see, right? Like, like that's proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. I mean, that's it. That's all. It is not rocket science. It's just like, this is what I know. And, 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 and some of your stories, you, you may not have come out of this life-wrenching emotional thing. You go, here's my story. I was doing fine and everything was good. And then one day I just knew that I needed to follow God. I just needed to obey. It made sense. There are some testimonies like that. It just just made sense. I didn't have a cataclysmic problem. I wasn't facing some dreaded thing. I just one day went, God's real. I should do that. It's a great, great story. It's a proclamation of him who called you, right? That's what you celebrate. And you're celebrating because once you were not a people, it says in verse 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're chosen, you're royal, you're holy, you're wanted. You are touched by an unstoppable mercy. And that is the mercy that we share. Let's pray together. Jesus, 
I thank you. I thank you sincerely for what we have in you. And I thank you sincerely for the context in which we are living right now within our society and culture. I thank you that the world around us is going to press us maybe more than we have ever felt. And from that pressing, they will see sincerity. They will see fortitude. They will see a celebration of you in the midst of adversity that from that pressing, some will go, wow, now I see that God is real because again, their life isn't easy and they're standing for him. And they're standing for him, not becoming vengeful or bitter or slanderous or envious or malice, but by being sincere, by being holy, by being kind, by being merciful, by being certain of the future, by not being derailed by the present, by living as exiles, living as those who know our citizenship is already secured eternally and this citizenship in this world is always susceptible to change and alteration and attack and assault, but we don't live for that. We live for you. And so I pray you would help us to be faithful. I think about those in the room this morning. There may be some of you that have not surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you're thinking about him and you're checking him out and you're coming to church and looking at the Bible some and saying, do the pieces fit together? And and I'm gonna go back to something I said last week at Easter. Um, Those pieces are gonna fit together if you sense God is fitting them together in your life. As you sense God doing something in you, if you sense that, surrender to that. Say, I confess my sin. I believe you're the only way. I, I know that isn't a popular notion in today's environment where we want everything to be equal, but not all things are equal. The gospel is exclusive. It's a singular message, but it's a message of freedom. It's a message of love. It's a message of grace bestowed as we confess our sins and turn to him for forgiveness. And he forgives fully and completely, removes our guilt, removes our shame, removes our alienation. And if you want to receive that today, to yield your life to that which God is doing in you, if you sense something in you that God is doing, you merely, right where you're at, say, Jesus, I confess my sin and I embrace your cross and resurrection as the means to life in you. Rule in my life as I follow after you. You make that prayer, your prayer in your way. God hears you, receives you. And Jesus, I pray that we would all live based on your promises and truth in your strength. We ask these things in your name. Amen.